I'm Glenn Crooks, and this is On Frame. In a moment, my broadcast partner, Matt Lawrence, will uh, join me to break down New York City FC. Big moment for them on Sunday, and they've got two more matches coming up in the next four days ahead. Also today, an interview with Caitlin Murray. She is the author of The National Team, the inside story of the women who changed soccer. They've got three World Cups, four Olympic gold, and despite that success, it hasn't always been blissful for the U.S. women, like the players trying to get current head coach Jill Ellis fired in 2017, or the polarizing figure named Hope Solo, who under different circumstances would probably still be the starting goalkeeper for the U.S. women heading into this summer's World Cup in France. Uh, those stories, intriguing, insightful, later with Caitlin Murray. All right, on the men's side, New York City FC, they get their first win of 2019 on Sunday in the nation's capital, Audi Field. It's been a difficult spot for opponents since its unveiling last year with the boys in blue. Uh, they had the best of D.C. United throughout this one. Two to nothing win. City, now one win, five draws, and one loss to start the season. Well, with me on the radio broadcast of that game on WNYE New York and the New York City FC Network and also Sirius XMFC, the former Millwall and Crystal Palace central defender, Maddie Lawrence. Maddie, nice to, nice to talk to you again. How are you? I'm doing really well, Glenn. Um, yeah, it's lovely to talk to you, and it's lovely to be talking to you after a, a win against DC United, obviously. First win of the season. But let's be positive. Also, NYCFC have only lost one game this season. I know there's been a number of draws, obviously five draws. But uh, they're now figuring out a way to win. And maybe that way to win is by uh, implementing this three-man back line that we saw against DC United. And that I think that both of us thought worked incredibly well. Yeah, so, well, you've had a, a chance to absorb it a little bit more, plus our three-hour discussion on the train ride home. <laughs> but uh, but what are your biggest takeaways? Uh, my biggest takeaway is that I feel James Sands look the, looks the most comfortable as a centre-half rather than a centre-midfielder. Um, I don't know him massively well from his time in the academy system and maybe for playing for the uh, younger age group teams for the, for the U.S., for the US, but looking at his MLS career, I think he appears more suited to centre half than centre midfield. It is only my opinion, but I, I'm not sure that he is athletically good enough to have a, a really positive effect in the middle of midfield at a higher level, whether that's MLS or whether that's going above that and playing for the national team and playing in, in, in Europe, maybe. I feel when he's playing at centre half, I think he reads the game so well. I think he has a, a picture in his head because the whole game is in front of him. I think it makes it a little easier for him to read the game there. I think he's comfortable on the ball, carrying it out of the back alongside Callens and, and Cheneau. And talking of those two guys, he's got two very experienced heads alongside him as well, which I think helps him too. I think in the two games we've seen him at centre-half, we've seen the best of James Sands. And maybe that's where Dome thinks he can have the biggest effect on, on the NYCFC team. I certainly think that right now. I know it's early stages. We're only a couple of games into his sort of centre-half career for NYCFC. But I think he looks assured, accomplished. And I think that is the best position for him right now. Yeah, a lot to digest here. Anton Tinnerholm, who also had a, a very good match out of this uh, three or five back system as a wing back on the right side. What he said about James Sands afterwards, he made it very brief, and I left it at that. 
He said, quote, he's playing like he's played in the top league in Europe for the last 10 years today. That's what he felt about his performance. Uh, did you see it at that level too? Um, it's, it's very hard to uh, equate uh, a couple of performances or one-off performance um, with a 10-year career. Um, careers are all about, exactly as the word states, it's all about longevity and consistency and being able to do it game upon game upon game, season upon season upon season. It's very hard for an 18-year-old kid to be consistent to, to that higher level for, for, for you know 10 games, let alone for 10 seasons. We, we'll see. He looked assured. He he played very well. Uh, he kept Wayne Rooney and, and Acosta very quiet. Obviously, it wasn't just him. It was the players around him as well. But I can't disagree with Tina Holmes' assessment that, you know, he he could be that good, I guess. I, I, I'm not going to say it looks like he, he's, he's a 28-year-old who's played well, for 10 was, years yeah. in Holland or he was just talking. He was just talking about that day also, but, uh, you know, and look, no and look, question. Yeah, and it, Many players have the ability to, to look that good for one game. And, and yes, he did. In that game, he, he did look that good. Let, let's uh, reassess after the, you know, the next yeah. five or six games. But look, I can't, I'm, not, I'm not taking anything away from James Sands' performance against DC United. I thought it was exemplary. Um, when Wayne Rooney was, uh, you know, only had one chance on goal, one header that, that he headed over the crossbar, Acosta didn't have any chances on goal. Uh, Segura didn't have any chances Rodriguez was completely obsolete and an awful lot of that was down to, to James Sands the way he marshaled the, the back line and also the way that the whole back five played if you want to call it that way the three centre-halves with the two wing-backs and also Sean Johnson as well I think it was one of Sean Johnson's easiest clean sheets he'll ever have but yeah going back to James Sands there's a player in the making there that is for certain and, and for me I think it is at centre-half So and going back uh, again to the uh, the limited activity of both Acosta, Luci Acosta, and Wayne Rooney, and uh, what Dolme Toron said after the game, uh, and and you look, and he also uh, mentioned Darwin Quintero from uh, a week earlier uh, yeah. at Minnesota, who was limited as well. And even though Adome switched out of that three back system into the traditional four back in the second half against Minnesota, and ended up with a three three result. Uh, his claim was that it worked last week. We had the accident, which was obviously Sean Johnson's own goal, yeah. which is he was referring to. And then what was really a comprehensive performance at DC United. So, and, and he also said, Dome Toron, that the team is more comfortable. He feels like they're more comfortable in this shape. So would you assume that that's what we're going to see for the uh, immediate future? I, I certainly do. It would be remiss almost of Dome to be, Stating that the team looks more comfortable in that formation and then change it up on, on Wednesday against Chicago Fire. I, I can't believe he would do that. I think it's not only the, the, the back three system, if we're calling it a 3-4-3, but it's also definitely a Forian ring who sits, certainly against DC United, who sat just in front of that three-man back line. I think they performed very well. I think it looks balanced with the Forian, obviously left-footed to the left side and ring right-footed to the right-hand side. They both cover a lot of ground. They both make numbers of tackles and they both pick up a lot of second ball. I think that uh, against DC United, it was possibly one of the best games I've seen NYCFC play maybe in the last sort of 12 months, 18 months without being able to pick out, you know, specifics to that. I, I, you know, for a side to keep out 
the quality of Acosta, the quality of Wayne Rooney. And that's the second time, let's not forget, that NYCFC have shut out, kept clean sheets against DC United. I think big plaudits have to go to, to Dome and his team for, for being able to follow a tactical plan. And it, it, it certainly worked twice. But what NYCFC now have to do is take it on and, and make some of those draws, the five draws we've seen already, turn those into victories, turn those into three points, because that's a necessity to move up the standings in the Eastern Conference. You know, uh, uh, Ian Quillen from MLSsoccer.com tweeted out something interesting that I wasn't aware of uh, about DC United at Audi Field, because we've pretty much called it a fortress for them and difficult place to play. But over their last three matches, no wins, two losses, and a draw. And he puts a note in here, despite seeing the opponent miss a penalty in each of the losses, Maxi Morales hit the post right at the death of half, which uh, could have uh, put New York City up 2-0. At the time, we thought that, that might be, uh, well, it, it was a big moment, and it could have gone either way, I suppose. Yes, it could have done. It could have been a huge turning point for me if I was on the D.C. United side trotting into the locker room 60 seconds after Morales has missed a penalty, I'd have been thinking, right, we've got away with one here, gave away a silly penalty, they missed it, we're still only one nothing down, you know, we can now take this to NYCFC and we can move on. They, they didn't do that. NYCFC was solid when they came out for the second half and they scored obviously within 10, 11 minutes of the, of the restart of the second half. So for me, yeah, it could have been a huge turning point. But credit and plaudits to NYCFC for, for not letting DC United back into the game because they could have trudged into the dressing room in complete antithesis to DC United, you know, shoulders hunched and, and very down and, and not feeling against Maxi Morales either, but, you know, bemoaning the luck that they've missed a penalty and they could have come out in the second half a little bit flat, but they didn't. They came out exactly the same as they did in the first half incredibly uh, steadfast and self-assured and, and that formation, as we say, remained the 3-4-3 three, three. and it didn't matter who came into the lineup. Jonathan Lewis obviously came in, Medina came in, Ibiaga came in a little bit and, and everybody slotted into place. Everybody in the squad or certainly the 14 players we saw on show against DC United looked as though they knew exactly what they were doing. There was no grey areas. They all knew they all seemed to know their role in the team, which I think bodes well for the future. Maybe let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's see what transpires at Yankee Stadium against Chicago Fire, obviously on the slightly smaller pitch at Yankee Stadium. But for me right now... Um, you know, unbeaten in three games, NYCFC, I, I think, aren't they? So that's, uh, it, it's, it's looking good. All right, Matty Lawrence, uh, radio analyst uh, with us here on, on Frame. Aber, uh, the supporters uh, anticipating and very happy to see uh, Aber, the Brazilian transfer, played for an hour and scored his first goal. And it was a convincing finish. And it, in, in many ways, finished off DC United, the second goal in the uh, in the victory. What did you think of his performance? I thought it was 62 minutes of a very good number nine play. He, he, he played as an orthodox number nine. He did what you want an, an orthodox number nine to do. He held the first and foremost, he held the ball up very well. He hit the back of the net and, and he had an assist. So all round, it was a, a great 62 minutes. Um, I was pretty impressed. I thought that he linked up very well with the likes of Matriza and, and Morales. I thought that all three of them had a, had a pretty good understanding. Um, and at times he was a little bit isolated, but he, but he managed to hold the ball up and he managed to bring his teammates into play. And that's the job. You sometimes as a number nine, certainly away from home, 
you do get a little bit isolated. It's your job to hold the ball up, uh, keep possession for a few seconds and let other players come up around you and, and join in with play. And he certainly did that. And I was pretty Im impressed with Aber. I, I thought it was uh, a, a solid first start for him, that's for sure, Glenn. You know, and, and Tinnerholm afterwards, uh, he... Uh applauded Aber. you know the the guys at the back they're under pressure uh, they've got to deliver the ball forward to break pressure and you want a a striker who can hold the ball and and that's what the Tinnerholm said his quote was it's not just the finish but he's able to keep the ball up front and uh, so that's important for for your teammates to understand that uh, you can hold the ball and then play in underneath or whatever you need to do to move forward with the next step yeah, the number nine needs to be an outlet and he needs to be an outlet there when sometimes the, the back line are under pressure and they can't always deliver quality service. They can sort of put the ball into an area where they know Ebert or whoever is playing number nine will be and they will do a job. Whether it's they, they can manage to hold the ball up or whether it's they can fight and make it very difficult for the centre half to deliver the ball back into play with any quality. So I feel Ebert did both. I feel he worked hard and tirelessly and when there was quality service into him, uh, he did hold it up. It, it, it's not just about holding it up. Sometimes you can't hold it up, but it's all about fighting and making sure that, as I say, the centre-half of the opposition can't take the ball under control and set off a, a, an attack for the opposition. I, I feel Ebert has the ability and the will as, all, as well to do both. And it's, sometimes it's about the will. Sometimes number nines are a little bit lazy and aren't, aren't willing to work from, from right to left and left back to right, but he seemed to do that. And also, uh, you know, we saw him play for 62 minutes and he came off. He's not 100% match fit, as we know. Hopefully against Chicago, dependent on uh, whether there's been any effects on, on, on the injury he, he has, has had or carried going into this game. Let's hope we can see 75, 80 minutes in his next game against Chicago. But, but who knows? Yeah. We, we, we won't know that until we've seen a little bit of training this week, I'm well, sure. As he put it afterwards, uh, I feel tired. <laughs> <laughs> it's my first it's my first game this year well he hadn't played a full match since December so uh, he says and and it, it makes sense that he'll need a few more games to get into that uh, kind of shape uh, Matt uh, before we close this Dome Tehran, uh the exact words he used in our pregame briefing right now I am in trouble as a head coach I, I tweeted that out it, it did get a lot of reaction because uh, it was really the first time that the head coach himself has talked about the fact that he he might be a bit embattled. And we know that Brian Marwood from City Football Group has been around. He's in charge of the satellite teams for City Football Group, which includes New York City FC. And Marwood will be around Yankee Stadium again on Wednesday against the Chicago Fire. Do you think a performance like New York City had on the road in a big spot is something that uh, will benefit Dome as a uh, decisions are made about uh, who will be the head coach? I, I think it has to. Uh, after seeing a performance like that, it's very hard, or you certainly couldn't sack a manager right now after, after that performance. Um, for me, the performance showed that the players are fighting for the, for the manager, for the head coach, for Dome Turon. It shows that the players are happy with the system that's being played. You, you quite often see teams around the world when they're unhappy with the manager almost down tools. I've, I've played in sides where um, players don't, don't give up. They don't go out to not try, but you can see that they're psychologically not in it. They can see that they psychologically don't back the manager and they put in poor performances time upon time after time. We certainly didn't see that 
against DC United. Again, time will tell going forward, but yes, of course, Dime was under pressure. With, with no wins from six games, of course he was. From four wins from 22 games, of course he's under pressure. NYCFC's a big club in, in terms of MLS stature. Um, yes, he felt the heat, but we saw him react to that, him bring another system to the, to the field. And also, as I say, for me, it's, it's, it's about the players as well as the manager. It's about the players backing the manager. And I, I think we saw that with a very positive performance defensively and on the attacking front as well against DC United. And one of those players, Tinner Holmes, said, everyone has been supporting Dome since the start. And I think today we showed the way he wants to play. So it's interesting. We'll see how it goes on Wednesday against Chicago. What do you think about the fire uh, they've been uh, in good form of late. Uh, they're, uh, it looks like uh, Katai is broken out of a, a slump. Sapong is producing, which uh, he's got more goals now than he did all of last season. And uh, Nikolic, uh, maybe he's found the finishing touch as well. What do you think of the fire? As you say, they've unbeaten in four games now. Um, they've only played two away games this season, though, so I think we have to take that into account. But look, they've gone to LA Galaxy, they've gone to Toronto, and they only lost by one goal against the Galaxy, and they they drew with Toronto. I, I think Toronto being one of the best teams in the Eastern Conference, if not the best right now, and LA Galaxy are right up there with LAFC at the top of the Western Conference. So they do well away from home, and they've taken care of business to a certain degree at home as well. They've only lost at home to Seattle, who as well are absolutely firing on all cylinders on the Western Conference. They beat Colorado in the last game 4-1, but I, I almost will take that out of the equation because Colorado Rapids are so bad. But they have, you know, they, they drew with Vancouver, they drew with Toronto, they beat New York Red Bulls. This is a decent team. For me, the weak point for them is the defence. Like many teams in, in MLS, the weak point is the defence and the goalkeeper. Up front is a different proposition. You mentioned some of the names, but in Nikolic, they have one of the best goal scorers, one of the best goal scorers in MLS. Maybe not the best number nine, but sheer goal poacher, sheer finisher, Nikolic is right up there with the very best. And behind him with Gaitan and Kutai and Sapong. Uh, Mihailovic and McCarty as well protecting the back four. This is a decent Chicago Fire team. It, it really is. For me, as I say, let, let's look on the positives for NYCFC and the, and the weak points for me, the weak spots is the defence. They've conceded 11 goals in seven games. Schweinsteiger's not a centre-half. He plays at centre-half because his legs have gone and he can't play in, in the middle of midfield anymore. He's, he's not that defensively minded. He gets out of position an awful lot. When he carries the ball sometimes, he then just labours back to get into position um, in, his, in the back four. That leaves a lot of pressure on McCarty and Mo Adams, if it's him, or Mihailovic, if it's him, to go back and fill in for him. So for me, quick counter-attacks and you can take... Um, you can certainly take care of, of Schweinsteiger being out of position. It's not just him as well. I just think the whole back four and Ustad in goal are not as good as, as many other teams in MLS. For me, that is the, what NYCFC has to target. All right, well, we'll found, find out uh, uh, soon enough. Uh, Matt will join me on the broadcast once again uh, for the uh, New York City versus Chicago Fire. Uh, 645 Eastern is the pregame. And, hey, let's do another live Twitter. What do you say? Yes, we certainly have to. We're starting to get some good hits on that, Glenn. Let's let's do another one sort of what? I don't know. Maybe an hour and a half before kickoff against Chicago right. Fire. Look for it. You follow me at Glenn Crooks with two N's and at Matty J. Lawrence. Matty, thanks so much. No problem, Glenn.
The U.S. women's national team has won three World Cups and four Olympic gold medals. How did this happen? Well, there's a book out right now that helps explain it. It was released a couple of weeks ago called The National Team, the inside story of the women who changed soccer. And we've uh, got the author with us today on frame, Caitlin Murray. She's written about soccer for, I'm just going to list off some publications, the New York Times, ESPN, Fox Sports, The Guardian, The, the Oregonian, Orlando Sentinel, and uh, many others. And uh, Caitlin, first of all, welcome to the program. I, how, how, congratulations. Uh, I know you've been on this whirlwind book tour. You okay? Yes. Yeah, we're, we're coming to the end here. I, I did wake up early, had some East Coast interviews, but I'm ready. <laughs> all right. Well, hey, the first thing I noticed in the title, The Women Who Changed Soccer, I noticed you didn't say The Women Who Changed Women's Soccer. Is that purposeful? Absolutely. I mean, the title, the national team, you know, that was my editor's idea. And when I first heard, you know, the idea of calling the book the national team, I sort of blanched a little bit because I think, you know, I'm used to U.S. men's national team, U.S. women's national team. Those are the names of the teams to me. But, you know, he made the argument, and I agree, that when you think of the U.S. national team, when you think of the team that has really brought glory to this country and has success and has, you know, fame and popularity, you do think about the women's national team. And it's it's not about the fact that they're the women's national team. It's about the fact that they're the premier national team in this country. Um, and then the subtitle, uh, it was originally going to be longer. Uh, we had to get a few words in there, like, you know, the word soccer. Um, but yeah, I mean, the idea was this isn't the women's national team. This isn't just women's soccer. This is soccer. I, I remember Megan Klingenberg uh, tweeting out last year during uh, the World Cup in Russia, and she said she put out this uh, hashtag men's World Cup to try yeah. to offset the fact that it's always been called the women's World Cup. So, you know, trying to get the, the, the women's tag off of there and uh, my wife and my daughter, you know, they're certainly strong women, independent, who uh, who don't enjoy the classification of women all the time. Do you agree? Yeah. I mean, honestly, it's really annoying that it is the Women's World Cup. And then, you know, when you refer to the Men's World Cup, I always lowercase the word men's because it's not officially in the title. But you do need to differentiate it. Like both of those World Cups matter there's something you talk about and it's confusing to just call the men's world cup the world cup um yeah i don't i don't envision fifa doing anything about it because they haven't really proven uh that they care that much about the women's world cup or women's soccer generally um but i really think it should be changed honestly um just from like a confusion <laughs> standpoint um i mean u.s soccer used to have the U.S. soccer account and then the women's national team account, and now they have a men's national team account and a women's national team account on their social media channels. And I think that was a step forward. Now we kind of know who we're following, you know, what content we can expect. So, um, yeah, I, I agree with Megan Klingenberg. Let's call it the Men's World Cup. <laughs> well, the first, uh, the first ever World Cup for women uh, wasn't even called the World Cup at first. 1991 in China, you had Anson Dorrance, the head coach, and there were some uh, youngsters named uh, Foudy Ham, Chastain, uh, 
uh, an older player, Mustafa, Michelle Akers uh, was there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, was, it wasn't even, uh, FIFA wouldn't permit it to be called the World Cup. Why was that? No, so FIFA called the first Women's World Cup. It was the first FIFA World Championship for women's football for the M&M's Cup. That's the title. It's gibberish. It's, it's a ridiculous title. Everyone just called it the M&M's Cup for short. And FIFA was worried that the women's game would not be worthy of the World Cup title. They thought it could tarnish it. They actually uh, had the halves be played five minutes shorter than the Men's World Cup. Again, because they were you know, worried that uh, it wouldn't be up to the level that they wanted. They have retroactively, now we call it the first Women's World Cup, but not the greatest note to start off with. <laughs> no, and I think, I know there were d discussions to use a smaller soccer ball in, in addition to just playing 80 minutes, which happened. I don't, the smaller soccer ball did not. I think Acres was a big part of that, but I, I don't quite recall. Yeah, there was some discussion about using a lighter ball. I, from what I understand, that didn't end up happening. Um, but the, the 80 minutes thing really annoyed the players. And Anton Dorrance talked about how FIFA viewed the women as kind of these delicate flowers, and they thought it was ridiculous. But they wanted the first World Cup. They wanted to be able to compete in that sort of stage. So, you know, they just put up with it. Well, the irony there, to me, is you look at that final, and Anton Dorrance, not a secret, high press, 3-4-3, and his team was losing their legs at the end of that match against Norway, which they ultimately won 2-1 to one for, the, for the world championship. But imagine if there were 10 minutes more on each game leading into that, and then the final. Maybe it worked in the U.S. favor. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, everything, everything could be different. I mean, there's so much, um, so many things. You, you know, over the course of this book, just small things that could change the course of the team's history. I mean, jump to 2007. What if Greg Ryan just started Hope Solo throughout the tournament? Like, how how much would the history of the team have changed? I mean, when Brianna Scurry started over Hope Solo and then she complained about it, that obviously cost the team the World Cup, essentially. And then it sort of blew up the inside of the team. And, you know, I think it was something that the team took a while to recover from. So, you know, there are all these sorts of examples where it's interesting to think about if just one thing was different, how could have the team's history have changed? You interviewed Hope Solo, and certainly she's a polarizing figure within the group, and, but probably the best goalkeeper in the world, uh, arguably, mm -hmm. uh, when she was permanently suspended by U.S. Soccer. You outline a meeting with Dan Flynn, the CEO, and head coach Jill Ellis in that meeting and how uh, there were some odd vibes, at least uh, according to Hope Solo and how she described it. But uh, I, I don't think anybody approved of her demeanor or what she did in 2007. Yet you could argue again that the best keeper in the world or certainly the best keeper in U.S. Soccer at this very moment will not be representing the team in uh, France in 2019. What do you think? Yeah, it's interesting. So I was in Los Angeles for the women's national team game against Belgium, and Brianna Scurry was there. And uh, the 99ers were there and available to the media. And, you know, I asked Brianna about 
a listener. And Bry talked about the mental side of the game and how uh, she has concerns that maybe a listener doesn't have that. And, you know, Hope Solo was absolutely a lightning rod and remains uh, a divisive figure. But there's no arguing that she had the mentality going into games that she she was going to put the team on her back and save them. And I think that there, you know, there are still questions about Alyssa Nair, who's going to be taking her place. Uh, it was interesting to hear Brianna Scurry talk about that because she is uniquely positioned to kind of talk about the demands of being a goalkeeper. Um, but yeah, I mean, Hope Solo, I think if, if none of these things had happened, if she didn't call the Swedish team cowards, if she didn't have that meaning you mentioned that I talk about in my book, I do think she would still be on the team. I do think she would be representing them in France this summer. And she would be a reason to feel confident about the U.S. Because just four years ago, in 2015, I remember some of the saves that she had to make. Australia. Uh, in, that first game yeah, against in Australia. I was gonna say, yeah, that first game. I mean, I think the quote afterward from Alex Morgan was that uh, hope saved our butts, I think is what she said. Yeah. So having a goalkeeper like that who can make that one big save in a game, that gives you a huge edge. And, you know, there are concerns right now. We'll see. I mean, the defense hasn't been great for the U.S. either. So take that, take the goalkeeper situation, and uh, there's reason to be worried. But Hope Solo is not coming back. <laughs> uh, as I talk about in my book, she says she will never again play for a federation that doesn't offer equal pay to the women. Um, and I don't think the Federation uh, is interested in having her services again in golf. <laughs> I don't know if you asked any of the current players this and whether it's anonymously or or just maybe get your opinion. Do you think the current group of players would have accepted Hope Solo back into the squad? You know, I haven't asked specifically about that. I mean, my personal opinion, just, you know, looking back at 2007, it was hard when Hope Solo was brought back into the team by Pia Sundhaga. There were players that were definitely not happy about it, but the mentality of this team has always been about winning. It's we want to win. We're going to do whatever it takes to win. And I think there was a recognition that Hope Solo was the best goalkeeper. They needed her if they wanted to win. And she was uh, welcome back into the team. And I think that would happen again, especially if they felt like she gave them their best chance to win in a major tournament. I don't know what the personal dynamics are, but um, I think the hope was friendly with a lot of players on the team. So, um, and she had a good connection with the defenders in the back line. Uh, I think she would have been welcome back in, but um you know, that's, that's not yep. going to happen now. <laughs> yeah. Well, especially friendly with uh, Carly Lloyd. We're with uh, Caitlin Murray. She's got a new book, The National Team, The Inside Story of the Women Who <laughs> Changed Soccer. And I, I want to talk about the coaches a little bit. Uh, you look at the other World Cup titles. We talked about 91. You've got 1999, and then not again until 2015. So there's a lot to digest, but there's uh, one thing that you brought up, and I think Julie Foudy was quoted, is how the women... Uh, socially, shall we say, were described in 99 compared to 2015. <laughs> like more about their looks and their sex appeal versus their uh, abilities. Yeah, I think the quote from Julie Foudy was 
something along the lines of, you know, now this was, she said this in 2015. She said, now we're talking about them as athletes. When, when we played in 99, it was all about who are these women? They're kind of hot, <laughs> which I thought was a hilarious quote from Julie Foudy and very much, uh, you know, a Foudy quote. But yeah, I mean, in 1999, I was a small child, so I was not aware of any of, you know, the coverage of the team or what it was like. And it sort of blew my mind when I did all my research and I saw how the team was discussed. I mean, I just pulled a bunch of headlines at the time, things like um, the babe factor in the soccer team's success um, or, wow, you know. The L.A. Times had a headline, success of the 1999 Women's World Cup is dot, 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 looking good. <laughs> you know, the, oh, the players' man. looks became a huge topic in 99. Uh, Dave Letterman uh, referred to them as babes and, you know, talked about Babe City <laughs> on his program. It was, it was a topic all its own, that these women were attractive and men enjoyed watching them. And honestly, it was kind of shocking to hear uh, the players talked about in that way. Um, and, you know, when Randy Chastain ripped off her shirt and celebrated, that only added to that sort of misogynistic and sexist dialogue around the team because, you know, she ripped off her shirt and, Oh my God, heaven forbid she was in her sports bra, <laughs> even though men, you know, take off their shirts all the time. Men remove their shirts so much that a few years later, FIFA actually made it a yellow card if a player removes their shirt because it happens so often. So now if you compare that to 2015, that did you in your, you know, in your research, did you, did, was it evident that there wasn't as much of that in the headlines and within the, within the articles? Oh, completely. I mean, I think it the the difference in coverage from '99 to 2015 probably says a lot about not being misogynistic when we cover female athletes now. I think it also says something about our growth in the United States as a soccer nation because a lot of the coverage in 2015 that I saw, and you know, I was there in Canada covering it. A lot of it was about tactics. A lot of it was criticizing Jill Ellis because the midfield looked like a mess in the early stages. And, you know, everyone knew that we had, that the United States had very talented players who should be able to compete better. Um, it, a lot of it was tactical. A lot of it was about what is the team doing? What should the team be doing? It was not as much of the off field stuff. I mean, there certainly was off the field stuff, you know, a lot of like soccer mom stories and that sort of thing, but definitely so different compared to 99 when, you know, in headlines, the women were being referred to as babes. Well, let's face it, uh, yellow card uh, accumulation to Megan Rapino and Lauren Holiday but put Morgan Bryan into the starting lineup, got Carly Lloyd closer to goal, and the next thing you know, the U.S. is starting to win games. There was a change of shape, but it was almost forced by the suspensions. Jill Ellis named the uh, World Coach of the Year after winning the World Cup. But interesting, the players uh, were, were not happy with her. And there, was, mm -hmm. uh, there seemed to be a movement to, uh, at least uh, there was an approach to the Federation uh, president, Sunil Galati, very much about Jill Ellis. Yeah, I talk about this 
failed coup in my book. Uh, I think it, I do think this, you know, attempt to oust Jill Ellis is probably one of these things that in another decade or two will really get kind of the gritty inside details. Um, you know, in my book in 1999, I have these great scenes of Mia Hamm and Julie Foudy sitting in a boardroom uh, arguing with Bob Consiglia, the president of U.S. soccer. That's the sort of story that it comes out well after the fact. So the players trying to get Jill Ellis fired in 2017 is still a little bit fresh, but I know there was a concern within the team about the direction of the team. I mean, at the time, the the U.S. had started dropping results. Jill Ellis began experimenting a lot, tinkering a lot. But the the players were concerned that, not, not necessarily about the experimentation, that's pretty normal, all coaches do that, but I think they felt that not enough was being gained from that and learned from that. Um, and, yeah, I mean, you mentioned in 2015 the yellow card accumulation Look, that is part of it. If there were no yellow cards, you have to wonder what would have happened. Because the way the U.S. was playing, it was a two-woman central midfield uh, with Lauren Holiday and Carly Lloyd. But they had these sort of undefined roles where they were just sort of having to switch off and figure things out on the fly. And it really didn't work. It wasn't until... Lauren Holiday was suspended. Morgan Bryan came in, and Morgan Bryan was given a very specific role. She was told, hold the ball, be the defensive midfielder, let Carly Lloyd push up. And that really changed things. I think it was less about the personnel, more about having defined roles. And as we look ahead to 2019, I think that's a concern again. The midfield at times just looks too uh, chaotic and there are these rotations and I don't know that the players are always sure of where they're supposed to be and what they're supposed to be doing. It's a three woman midfield now, but I, I kind of worry that it's the same issue. So it'll be interesting to see how it goes in France. Well, and the players have had this uh, sort of power, if you will, over the years. I mean, you, you mentioned their players uh, um, basically uh, wanted April Heinrichs removed, who was the captain of the 91 team that won it, but then uh, replaces Tony DeChico. Yeah, 2005. Yeah, who was uh, just so popular. Then uh, Tom Sermani was, I think, uh, that that was, uh, there was discussions there. I mean, you never quite get uh, the full story, but, but you hear that uh, the players yeah. were involved in that one as well. I actually think it's pretty much every coach since maybe Tony DeChico the players have had some sort of involvement in getting that coach out. I talk about it in my book. Pia Sunhaga had an incredible record with the team. She, um, you know, she was one of the most successful coaches that the team has had in terms of just the wins and losses. And the players, some of them, some veteran players, wanted her out. I think they didn't like uh her approach um as a coach and they wanted her gone and as i report in my book u.s soccer was shocked by that because the team had been so successful and u.s soccer did not know how to react to that to having players say they want pia sunhaga out but pia sunhaga having a lot of success and being a very good coach for the team uh so 
Pia did leave on her own. She chose to go coach Sweden. But part of it was she knew that U.S. soccer was sort of dragging their feet as they tried to figure out how to sort through this mess where some players wanted her gone and U.S. soccer wanted her to stay. So, you know, even though I wouldn't put Pia in the category of coaches that have been pushed out, you know, it's yeah. kind of the same thing across the board. Same with Tom, same with, uh, you know, Jill unsuccessfully. Yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting to see how it's happened over and over again. It does contrast with DeChico, the late Tony DeChico, who, you know, Brandy Chastain recently said she wants to coach in the national team program to uh, to continue the legacy of coaching of DeChico and bring forth his methods. You know, she coaches in the DA out in California and, and has, you know, started to get her badges. And, uh, you know, so that's DeChico seemed to have that uh, admiration from top to bottom. You know, I, I think yeah. there's always players that are going to be disgruntled, but he didn't seem to have the same sort of issues. Yeah, it was really interesting to me that – so I did interview Bob Consiglia for this book, and he said to me that – you know, I asked him why they didn't keep Tony DiCicco because, I mean, it was very strange that they didn't seem to want to keep him. He had just won a World Cup. His record um, – I don't have it offhand, but, I mean, it was an incredible record. Uh, there seemed to be no reason they would want him gone, and I asked Bob Consiglia about it. He said that some players wanted him out, but honestly, I interviewed a lot of players and I did not hear that from anyone. What I actually heard from the players was that uh, Tony DiCicco would not get involved in some of the very tense contract negotiations and fights with U.S. soccer that were going on at the time. And the players had heard that the Federation wasn't happy, that Tony DiCicco didn't rule with an iron fist. He didn't keep the players in line and tell them to, you know, stop being so difficult for U.S. soccer. Um, so it was more so a power struggle than anything to do um, with soccer or with the players being unhappy. Um, so it's interesting to kind of hear those different narratives now. But, I mean, Tony was very beloved, um, as I talk about in my book, and um you know, no, no, no player I spoke to had anything remotely bad to say about him. Right. And, uh, well, April Heinrichs, you know, ultimately becomes the technical director of U.S. soccer, uh, working side by side with Jill Ellis. So one would assume that uh, despite the fact that she eventually was uh, replaced uh, as the U.S. women's national team coach, that she uh, was was following some of the guidelines that the, 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 the people um above her uh, were dictating. We're with Caitlin Murray. Her book is The National Team. And Caitlin, just a couple of other things. The NWSL uh, just got started recently, and that's after two other leagues failed. You wrote in uh, your book, the end, quote, the NWSL going strong into its seventh season. So I'm, I'm going to ask you, with A&E dropping out uh, as the national TV coverage at the last minute, and the U.S. Soccer's agreement, I didn't even know this, uh, but you had this in there, uh, ends in 2019 at the end of this season. Mm -hmm. How are you seeing it as really strong? <laughs> well, first of all, I would say that I finished writing my book months ago. <laughs> so there is a component where it's like, okay. I just have to write what the situation is now. I obviously... You're, you already have to include an addendum. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, Second I, edition, due out uh, when? <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, when I wrote it, I obviously didn't know that the A&E situation was going to happen. Um, so, I mean, that, that definitely changes the optics quite a bit that the, the A&E deal has ended. Um, I do think the league itself is strong. I mean, we are going into a seventh season of a league that, you know, has now more than doubled the previous attempts at a league. Um, I think when you look at the individual clubs, I think a lot of them are doing well. And ultimately, I think the success of the individual clubs will determine the success of the league overall. I think in terms of the league itself, you know, the front office operations, I do have a lot of concerns. As I report in the book, U.S. Soccer's management agreement with the league ends at the end of this year. They, you know, U.S. Soccer's not set up to run a league. They don't want to keep running a league. They want to not have this responsibility anymore. The owners of the individual clubs also don't want U.S. soccer to continue running the league. They are looking, as I report in my book, at having the USL take over running the league. Um, until that happens, it sort of feels like we're in a holding pattern because the front office, you know, Amanda Duffy is the president. I don't really know who else they have in the front office at this point. They don't have a comms director. Um, their previous communications director, I think, essentially worked out of U.S. soccer and was hired by U.S. soccer. They don't have um, a lot of the staff that you would expect. Um, so from a league front office standpoint, I'm definitely concerned. It's been a lot harder to cover the team this year because there's no communications director, because it's harder to find information. Um, it sure is. I mean, I a couple of weeks before the start of the season, I, uh, I wrote and just requested all the media contacts for all the teams. I have four so far. So, I mean, it's, yeah. <laughs> I think that's an example. Yeah, and the media contacts are on the website. I emailed the person who is listed for the Seattle Reign, and I got an email back that that person is no longer there. <laughs> so, uh, you know, no one is there to keep this information updated. Every season in the past, they did a pre-kickoff conference call before the first weekend. Did not happen this year. Um you know, it's it's not a good situation, but I would say I think the individual clubs, in some in many cases, are doing better than they ever have before. Um, I am the the biggest worry for me at this point is this is a World Cup year. This is going to be the year that people start paying more attention. There's going to be more opportunities, and I just don't think the league is set up at all to capitalize on that at all. And it's just going to pass them by, you know, there that, will be that, interest from yeah. sponsors and, you know, broadcasters. I just, I think it's going to pass the league by at this rate. Yeah. And I mean, you couple that with uh, that management agreement ending at the end of the 2019 year from us soccer, uh, but you mentioned individual teams, Caitlin, you live in Portland. You've covered uh, the thorns of NWSL, also the timbers of uh, major league soccer, but the thorns, they average like, Fourteen thousand a game at Providence Park. More like more like seventeen at this point. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Okay, well, I, well, what is it about soccer uh, in the city of roses? I mean, Providence Park uh, on the men's side has been just a, a cauldron. I mean, it's and you talk to any mm -hmm. player in the league, coach in the league, they they generally list Providence Park first in terms of atmosphere. But so, what is it about the city? 
Yeah, you know, I actually I did a story. Um, I think it came out. Yeah, it came out in late 2017. I remember because that was when the men uh, didn't <laughs> didn't qualify for the World Cup. But I did a story uh, for the New York Times in October 2017, where I attempted to sort of answer that question: Why is soccer so popular in Portland, and why does the women's soccer team draw such huge crowds? And uh, Sunil Gulati had a great quote where he said, you know, if I knew why, I'd just bottle it up and take it everywhere. Uh, so it's it's something I think we can really only guess at. But Portland has always supported soccer. Uh, the Timbers existed since 1975. And I think that really is a groundwork for a community that knew about soccer, paid attention to it, cared about it. You know, Portland is also a market that only has one other major sports team in the Trailblazers in the NBA. So it's not a crowded market. If you're not going to a Blazers game, what else are you going to go to? It's going to be Timbers or Thorns. And Portland is a progressive community. Um, The women's team on the Portland Pilots always have gotten big crowds. Um, It's it seems very Portland for them to embrace a women's team in the thorns and support them as well because it is such a progressive community. And I also think that, you know, Providence park is a rarity in soccer right now where it's this downtown stadium that, I mean, I can walk there from my house. I live, um, sort of in the, the most urban part of Portland. Uh, It's very centrally located. People can walk there easily. um, And it creates this really cool character and dynamic to, you know, be downtown and have games there. Um, So I think it's, it's a lot of little factors that kind of add up, I think. Well, uh, Caitlin Murray, uh, author of The National Team, The Inside Story of the Women Who Changed Soccer. Uh, if you want to get some insight uh, and just in soccer in general and how the women uh, have incorporated this uh, fantastic landscape of the game here in the States, go out and get it, man. Go out and get it. How do they get the book? Just Amazon.com. It's right. That's uh yeah, it's on, it's on Amazon. It's in like almost every Barnes and Noble in the country, I think. So it should be there. Um, or if people need links, they want to go to some other retailer, they can go to uswntbook.com. Obviously stands for U.S. Women's National Team. uswntbook.com. All the links are right there. And you can follow Caitlin Murray at Caitlin, uh, Caitlin Murray at Caitlin Murr. Just take off the A-Y. And you follow her on Twitter. Well, good luck with the uh, the rest of your tour and interviews, Caitlin, and and uh, special uh, especially good luck with the book. Uh, hope to run into you soon. Great, thanks for having me. And thanks also to Maddie Lawrence talking earlier about New York City FC, who will host the Chicago Fire on Wednesday at Yankee Stadium. Maddie will be my partner for that one on WNYE ninety one point five FM in New York and the New York City FC Network on TuneIn, pregame 645 Eastern, and catch our Twitter Live preview as well. That'll do it for this week's On Frame. I'm Glenn Crooks.